Very nice to be with you all again. We're delighted to, uh, to be a part of your transition. And first time I think I've ever been called Rabbi Steve, but I'll, I'll have to adjust to that. Actually fitting with the text we've got here this morning, that the word's going to be thrown around here. We are going to be in John chapter 3 this morning and page 883, entitling this the first gospel presentation, or this may date you, Nick at Night, okay? You'll understand why here in just a moment. Have you ever thought about this, that in the world there are really only two religions? You may say, wait, wait, there isn't there Islam and Buddhism and Shinto and all these varieties? No, there are really only two religions. There's the religion of doing, that is, adherence of this religion, feverishly working, trying to earn the favor of the divine being, hoping against hope that when they die, they will be accepted, you know, into the afterlife. There are some churches that have Christian denominational names on their signs out front, and yet they're clearly in the religion of doing, keeping the Ten Commandments, getting baptized, you know, trying to live by the golden rule, and at the end of life, hoping that my good works outweigh my bad works so that God will accept me into his presence. That's the religion of people who are trusting in something they're doing to earn the favor of God. The only other approach is those who are trusting in something that God has done for them. Not something they're doing, but something God has done for them. And that indeed is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something not that we do, but something that he has done for us. Now, wouldn't it be a tragedy if uh, someone were to be born in a place like Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and grow up their whole life religiously active, thinking that they're ready to meet God, and when God sees them, he's going to say, glad you're here, nice job, you kept all the rules, welcome into heaven. They're expecting that kind of a welcome, and instead they hear something devastating like this, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, the text we're going to look at this morning in the third chapter of John's gospel is a story about a man who was in that very condition, very religious, very active, actually quite confident that when he died, he would be welcomed into heaven, and yet he did not understand the critical danger that his life and his soul was in. Now, last week, Steve talked to us about the end of John chapter 2, and that Jesus knows the difference between people who really are trusting in him and people who just um, have the, the appearance of having a relationship with God. And Jesus can look into the hearts of people. He looks into our hearts, and he knows who truly is believing and trusting in such a way that we're going to be accepted into his presence, and those who may be outwardly professing to believe in him, or at least to be religious, and yet in their hearts, there's not the, the spirit of God, yet there's, there's darkness and, and unbelief. This story this morning is going to be an opportunity for all of us to reflect deeply on our own heart and our relationship with God. 
This is uh, one of my wife's very favorite stories in the Bible because when she was just a little girl, how old were you? Seven? Uh, her Sunday school teacher shared the story of Nicodemus, and that is the day that she began to believe and follow Jesus in her heart, and she became a follower of Christ. Well, let's, uh, let's bow and ask God to just bless us as we open his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity together with your people. Thank you for the truths that we've already reflected on as we sang together and worshiped you. And truly, Lord, we celebrate the fact that you have rescued us, that your love for us is indescribable, that you in your holiness would love sinners like us who have rebelled against you. And yet, Lord, we know that that love is the very heart of the message of the gospel. So open our hearts to that today. We pray that if anyone is here that has not yet come to know you in this personal saving way, that today they would leave here having confidence that their sins have been forgiven and that they are in right relationship with you through trust in Christ. And for all of us who know you as Savior, May this reminder today just deepen our joy and our confidence in what you have done for us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Now, when the Bible storytellers are telling us a story, it's very important when they slow the camera down, so to speak, and zoom in, that we pay attention to what they're focusing in on. You know, sometimes a a story might in just a few verses of Scripture cover months or even years, and then all of a sudden it slows down and we hear 40 verses about one conversation between two individuals. Well, not quite to that level, but here in John 3, John is going to zoom in and let us listen to a conversation between a human (laughs) and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Actually, in the next several chapters here of John, as Steve talked about last week, Jesus knows everyone's heart. In the next several chapters, we're going to see Jesus interacting with different individuals to the extent that he exposes their heart. So what they're really believing comes right up to the surface. So let's listen in on the conversation that Jesus has with this man by the name of Nicodemus. We begin here in in verse 1, and the setting of the story is Nick at night coming to Jesus. There was a man named Nicodemus, we read, a Jewish religious leader. Aha, we've heard about these guys back in chapter 2, who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, John quickly identifies Nicodemus as one of the opposition, right? The same Jewish religious leaders that uh, gave Jesus all kind of the business because of his cleansing of the temple back in chapter 2. As a body, they were speaking now. Now, they are sending one particular individual to represent them to come and confront Jesus because apparently that mic drop moment when they shamed him in the temple has not delimited his influence or the ongoing of his ministry. And so they send this powerful individual, Nicodemus. 
We know from ancient Near Eastern backgrounds that Nicodemus likely belonged to an aristocratic, very wealthy family, uh, probably descended from some folks that were of military might and prowess. His name, Nicodemus, actually means a conqueror of the people. And he is the representative of everything that is opposed to Jesus Christ and Jesus' message of his claim to be the Messiah, the one the Old Testament predicted. Now, notice here it says, and no accident that John wants us to to realize, he came to talk to Jesus after dark. It's night. If you remember back in John 1 and all the way through the gospel, there's going to be this interplay between light and darkness. And the people who are believing and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they're spoken of as being in the light. And people who are still in the shadows, in the dark, they're holding back in unbelief or maybe even uh, outrightly opposing Jesus in his message. So here, John clues us, this is somebody still in the shadows. He's not stepped out into the light. He appears to be intrigued by what Jesus is doing and claiming. And yet what we probably have here is an an ancient uh, rhetorical device known as a social challenge. You'll notice as we read the story, it's, uh, it's plural pronouns throughout. Jesus talks about we, and Nicodemus talks about we know. So it's, it's likely that uh, they, they have some disciples along with them. Nicodemus has some of his disciples and students, or maybe he's speaking for the whole group of the Jewish leaders, and, and Jesus no doubt has some of his disciples. This is a public showdown, in other words, right? Two people having a conversation, but it's a public showdown. Now, let's listen in on the exchange, and what I want you to notice here in uh, the conversation, as you see here, it takes nearly 13 verses to cover this brief conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. There are actually three exchanges, and here's what I want you to, to pay attention to as we go through. As the conversation begins, Nicodemus is large and in charge. He is the teacher of Israel here to instruct this person who he kindly refers to as a rabbi, and yet uh, he's laying down a challenge to Jesus, even in his opening comment. By the end of the conversation, Nicodemus is hardly saying anything, and Jesus has emerged as the authoritative teacher pronouncing truth from heaven. So just notice that as we, as we work through the exchange here. We begin in verse 2, verse 2b, and notice uh, what Nicodemus says to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, "It's it's an honored title, especially for a guy who's a carpenter who didn't go to the rabbinical schools. He has no background in this. He is not uh, the person with the education pedigree, and yet Nicodemus says, we're going to elevate you. You We're going to call you rabbi. Rabbi, he said, "We, we all know. There's the plural. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, there's a couple of different ways to read Nicodemus here. One would be, well, he's he's trying, he's a little nervous, he's trying to be complimentary. He's calling Jesus rabbi. He says, yeah, we, we admit that you've done some miracles, the, the idea of the word signs, and, and, and we're, we're thinking you've come from God to teach us. That, that would be a charitable reading 
of Nicodemus. The problem is when we see Jesus' response in just a moment, his response seems to be responding to something different than just a a nice little compliment. I mean, it's a compliment to call him rabbi, but he just demoted him from God to being a human rabbi, right? So it's not really even a compliment. So Nicodemus begins with this, but really I think this is the tenor of what he's saying. He's saying everybody is saying, all the people are saying, you're this great teacher, you've come from God, you're doing these miracles, but we want you to know as the religious leaders, we don't buy it. Okay, now that's a little different way to read what Nicodemus says, right? But for me, it helps us make sense of what Jesus then says to him, because listen to Jesus' response. Verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Three times Jesus is going to say something. I tell you the truth, or I assure you. It's like, it's a very strong uh, pronouncement in Greek that means this is from God directly, what I'm about to say, okay? I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. What a statement. What a statement. Jesus, in so many words, Nicodemus wanted to talk about Jesus. We know who you are. The people say who you are. Jesus changes the subject. He says, let's talk about you. You, the privileged religious elite of Judaism, you guys all think that just because you were born into Jewish homes and grew up learning the Old Testament and living by the law and keeping all the commandments and the ones God gave and all the ones you guys made up, you think that because of all that, that when you die, when your life is over, when God's kingdom comes to the earth, you're all automatically, you got a ticket for entry, right? That's what you think. And here Jesus confronts this man under this delusion that because I'm religious, I'm in. And he says, look, Nicodemus, unless this radical change happens in your life, described as being born over, literally the word can be born from above or born again, you've got to have a radical change in your life or you won't even see the kingdom of God. Talk about an upside the face to Nicodemus. I had an old car when I was going through college. Some of you folks that are near my age will remember the 73 Chevrolet Vega. Anybody heard of that? Had an aluminum block. It was bad. And uh, got about 20 miles to the gallon on gas and about 10 miles to the gallon of oil. That's the way it worked. Um, One afternoon, I pulled in the gas station and says to the guy, this was back in the day when they pumped your gas. Remember that? And not in Jersey, but in Indiana, they actually pumped your gas, and you didn't have to pay them extra for it. And the guy says to me, "Um, how much would you like? And I said, "Um, I'm a college student. I need about a dollar's worth, which would have brought you about three gallons at the time. And he looks at me and says, would you like that in a cup (laughs) to go? Um, I said, well, could you you check the air in my tires? Could you put some air in my tires? The guy comes back after looking at my tires. He says, buddy, you don't need air in your tires. You need tires around your air. That's what you need. The same guy a little later, I took my Vega in for some mechanical service. He gave it a look over, came out to me and said, now you need a license plate jack. I said, 
what is that? He goes, well, we slide a jack under the license plate, jack up the car, and we slide a whole new car under it. That's what you need. A new car, a radical change, a radical makeover. Well, how, how shocking that must have been to a person who grew up in religion. And Jesus says, look, your religion is not going to get you there. All this stuff you've been doing, thinking God is pleased with you, no, you need a radical makeover, not just turning over a new leaf. You actually need the beginning of new life. Wow. Well, Nicodemus answers, and we come to the second exchange. And he says, what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? How can an old man, and apparently Nicodemus by this time in his life is older, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? It's a legitimate question. Jesus just told him, you have to be born again. The adjective Jesus used, it can either mean born from above or born over, born again. Nicodemus apparently reads this completely literally. Jesus is saying, I need to repeat the physical birth process and go back into my mother's womb as an old man and be reborn. How can this be, he says. And notice Jesus' reply. Notice how Nicodemus' words are coming fewer and fewer, and Jesus is beginning to instruct with more and more information. Jesus replied, I assure you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. I take that to be a reference to this being born again that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about baptism. He's not talking about human birth here. He's talking about uh, this Old Testament picture of cleansing that would come. The Spirit would cleanse with pure water so the person is made over, right? He says, uh, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Now, the text that Jesus is referring to here from Ezekiel 36 is uh, one that ties this idea of being washed with pure water and the, look at verse 26, I will give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit in you, I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. This is, this is not a foreign idea even to Old Testament believers. The, the prophets knew about this, they talked about this. Certainly the religious leaders of Israel should have known about this, this aspect of this cleansing that has to happen in a person's life in order for them to be in a right relationship with with God. And I I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's sort of alluding to Ezekiel 36 when when he says, you need to be born of water and of the Spirit, just like the prophet Ezekiel was talking about. He... um, He likens this process of being reborn or made over to uh, the, uh, the process of the wind. Oh, how disappointing. Those are leaves in the picture. 
That's supposed to be a gift. They're supposed to be flying all over the place, but apparently something got locked up in the, uh, in the technology here. Anyway, um, Jesus uses the illustration of the wind outside. Our, our middle son just moved to Grand Prairie, Texas here a few months ago, and the other morning, we were, or the other evening, we were watching Channel 8 News here in Lancaster County, and they put up a, a, a graphic that had all these places in the United States where these strong wind gusts had just happened, and Grand Prairie, Texas was the top place in the nation, 109 mile per hour wind gust. And uh, our son described looking and seeing the effects of where that wind had been in and around the apartment that he lives in there. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You, you can't see the wind. You can't explain how it works or predict what it's going to do. Meteorologists make a living of trying to do that, right? But they, you can't predict exactly what it's going to do. But you can see the effects of what it produces, Right? Growing up in southern Indiana, we often saw the effects of what the wind can do. We lived in a place in the state known as Tornado Alley, so you, no, nothing to, hard to imagine there about that, right? Um, we can see the effects of the wind, but you can't explain it. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this change that I'm talking about that comes into a person's life, you can see the difference from the old to the new. I'm not talking about just turning over a new leaf or trying to be a better person. I'm talking about a radical life overhaul that is outside of your own ability to produce. It's something that God divinely must do in your life. I mean, I'm talking about a change that not just helps you to be a little better person. I'm talking about a change that crushes addictions in your life, a change that that chases out the worship of idols in your life, the change that remakes you from the inside out, not from the outside, uh, trying to impress others. That's the point he's making to Nicodemus, and he's saying to Nicodemus, unless this change happens in your life, it's not something you can produce, Nick. It's something God must do. And it is in fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies of people being washed clean And their heart, which used to be stony and hard, now being warm and open and teachable and growing in spiritual things. That change, Jesus says, only the Spirit of God can produce that. And you, the religious leader, like any other person in the world, you need that change like anyone else. Well, this must have come as an amazing affront and surprise to Nicodemus. And so he enters his third uh, response now, third question. And at this point, (laughs) Nicodemus is kind of out of words, right? It's like he's been in this argument with Jesus and he's losing and Jesus is making better points than he does. And and at the end, he can't think of anything to say. So he blurts out, look at, look at verse 9. How are these things possible, he says. It's kind of like saying, well, you, but, but, blah. He just blurts this out. He's out of words. He's, he's desperate. And so this desperate lunge, how can these things possibly be? And Jesus has a how question right back for him. How can these things be, he says. 
you are a respected Jewish teacher and yet you don't understand these things? He's saying, how can it be that you, the lead teacher, don't already understand this? It's clear in the scripture. Now, folks, this is Jesus confronting what humans have done with a God-given system of religion, the Jewish religion, you know, the, the faith of Old Testament saints, given by God, ordained by God, the sacrificial system, the worship in the temple, the offering of animal sacrifice, blood being shed, pointing forward to the Messiah who was going to come and offer the once-for-all sacrifice. All of this was given by God, and yet by the time Isaiah comes along, Isaiah says uh, for God to the people, guys, you know what? Your, your sacrifices make me sick. Your rituals, your keeping the rules, everything is making me sick. Stop it. Because, he says, your hearts are far from me, and yet you're still keeping the rules on the outside, sort of, you know, sort of. And so here is Jesus confronting this mess that Judaism has become, that Nicodemus is the representative of. And notice what he says to him further. How can it be that you, the teacher, it's very interesting, he says, you are the teacher of Israel. He uses the definite article in the Greek. Look at verse 11. I assure you, here comes this certainty courtroom language again. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, that is, about things like being born again here in this life, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Like the, the, the new realities of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation that God is making all things new and preparing us for. Jesus said, I can't even talk to you about those things because the basic how to get the first base in, in, the, in the life of faith, you don't even understand that. Look at verse 13. No one, Jesus says, has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. When Jesus says that there was a, there was a whole teaching in uh, this period of time that Jewish people had about Enoch and Elijah and different people who had gone to heaven in the Old Testament stories and about their heavenly exploits and all, ki all kinds of fables sort of things had cropped up around here. And Jesus is sort of speaking to that and saying, look, forget all that stuff. I'm telling you, I didn't just go to heaven. I came from heaven. I'm speaking as someone who authoritatively, I am the son of God and I am telling you these things. You have to be born again. And then he reminds Nicodemus of a story he no doubt knew very well. It's from Numbers 21, and it's the story when the children of Israel were, were traipsing around the wilderness, and they uh, are rebelling against God. And in this rebellion, God sends poisonous snakes among the people to, to punish them, to judge them for their rebellion and to bring it to a stop. Anybody here creeped out by snakes? How about poisonous snakes running all over the community, right? And in that plague, 
God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Create the image of a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up and tell the people, anyone who looks at this serpent in faith that this is going to heal you, you will be spared. You will receive physical life. You know what? If I'm a guy getting bitten by a poisonous serpent, I'm looking for a snake bite kit. I'm looking for a 911 call. I'm looking for an ambulance or a doctor or something. Don't tell me, just, hey, see that pole over there with that picture of a snake? Just look at that and believe that's, that's what God says will, will heal you. Just do, do that. It's completely illogical. It makes no sense. And yet that's exactly what happened is people looked at that serpent on that, on that pole. They, they were delivered from this plague of death. And Jesus is assuming Nicodemus remembers that story. He goes, remember that? Well, that is this. Like the snake was lifted up and people looked at it and were healed. The analogy here is not the snake is lifted up and Jesus is lifted up on the cross. So that is part of it. The analogy is what happens when you look in faith. Look in faith at the snake, healing, physical life. Jesus says, everyone who looks in faith at me on the cross, pouring out my life for their sins, God says, you have eternal life. Your sins are free. It's illogical, folks, isn't it? Like, really? This is the way we get right with God? We don't do anything. We don't keep any rules. It, it's simply an attitude of the heart to believe that what Jesus is doing on the cross was for me to pay for my sins and that in this believing of what he has done for me, he died a death he did not deserve. It was my death. He lived a virtuous life that I could not live and yet it gets credited to my account when I look in faith and believe. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, that's what you need. You need this kind of, he's talking about how the new birth happens. It's through believing what Jesus did on the cross for us. He died, he rose again. We sang about this being buried with Christ and raised with him. We picture it in our baptism. But all of it is a symbol of the reality of what happens internally in a person's life. Now, wouldn't you love to know what Nicodemus said next? (laughs) Talk about a mic drop moment. Jesus just dropped the mic. (laughs) And the religious teacher has nothing else to say. Now, spoiler alert, I don't know who's going to be doing John 7 or or, uh, John 20, I think it is, but Nicodemus is going to get mentioned two more times in John's gospel. This time, he's an opponent. He doesn't believe. He's insolent. He's challenging Christ, and he's in the shadows, in the dark. Just stay tuned. Keep reading and see what happens to Nicodemus as we go through John's gospel because he's clearly going to move from the dark to the light, which gives me hope for all of us, right? (laughs) No matter the condition of our hearts, In the shadows, the Spirit of God has power to change people from the inside out. Well, Nicodemus is representative, folks, of all of us. It's 
It's rebellious, sinful humanity, that includes all of us, flaunting our fist in God's face, proudly saying, we will fix this relationship ourselves. We will do this our way. Thanks for giving us the rules. We'll be fine now. We'll keep it on our own. And Jesus lovingly yet strongly is confronting this false religion, this religion of doing, this religion of trusting what we do. And he's saying, no, it's not, nothing. it's not anything you can do. It's what the Spirit of God must do in you. Now, we come to the remainder of our text here this morning, verses 16 to 21. Anybody have a red-letter Bible in your lap this morning? Okay. And you, the red letters like keep going, in verse 16 and following. Um, this, uh, this could be debated from, from different viewpoints, but... Uh, you know that the red letters were not in the Greek New Testament when it was originally written, right? Actually, there were no periods or quotation marks or anything, no punctuation. And yet, it's, whew, I mean, really challenging to figure it out, uh, just how things fit together. It's, it's very likely that the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus has ended in verse 15. And now in verse 16, and we won't go into the reasons, there are a number of good reasons why I don't think the red letters continue here. This is not Jesus continuing to speak. This is John the evangelist now taking up the conversation. Because you see, John is just not reporting a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus for the historical value. He's telling us about that conversation because he wants to have a conversation with us. So let's listen to verse 16 to 21, and listen to what Jesus explains now to Nicodemus, this man caught in this trap of human doing religion, and it's all messed up, and people are misunderstanding, and people are dying without really being in right relationship with God because they're trusting the wrong thing. Jesus is now going to say to Nicodemus, here's the solution to the whole mess. It's the love of God in Christ. Listen to it. Verse 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Very inclusive, right? Not just a privileged few. It's the world God loves. The world God sent Jesus to die for. That's the explanation of how God is going to make this new birth possible. He sent Jesus. He gave him. So it's not just Jesus coming from heaven. It's Jesus coming and giving his life on the cross of Calvary. And it's beautiful here. He says he gave his one and only, his unique, his only begotten, the King James said, his one and only son. And the reader, you can't help but think back to Genesis 22, and Abraham, God says, I want you to take your son, uh, your only one, uh, the one that you love, take that one and kill him, sacrifice him. You remember the story? And Isaac was the one through whom the Messiah was going to come. Like, how? This makes no sense. And then God provides a sacrifice instead of Isaac the ram. And that ram makes us think all the way forward to Jesus. The difference in the two stories is Abraham didn't have to give up his one and only son. God intervened. But God is going 
to give up his one and only son to die for us. He validates this in verse 18. He says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light, refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. John is now confronting us with this beautiful truth of what God has done for us in the person of Christ. And he's saying that the only way to escape God's judgment, and it's coming, folks, it's coming as sure as the sun came up this morning in Lancaster County. The day is coming when all things are going to be exposed before God. And folks are going to be welcomed into eternal life or told to depart because God never knew them. And Jesus is making it very clear to Nicodemus, it's not your religion, it's not your rule keeping, even the good ones that God gave you. It's not that that gets you in right relationship with God. It's only through believing in what God has done already for you. Missionary John G. Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He was translating the scripture into the native language of the people. And he was trying to find the word for believe (laughs) to translate John 3.16. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he, he couldn't find a word that seemed to match that idea of believing. Well, one afternoon after coming back from a hunt, he and some of his native friends uh, we're relaxing, and, and, pa- and uh, Peyton stretched himself out on a lawn chair outside the place where he was living, and the native guide said to him, it's good to stretch out and rest when you're tired. And Peyton said, got my word for belief. <laughs> stretch out and rest. That's what it means. You put your entire weight on something else. You, you trust this chair to hold you up and you, you rest in its ability to hold you up. For whosoever will stretch out and rest on Jesus and what he's done, instead of trusting in my own doing, Jesus says, you will be born from above by the Spirit of God. Something that is only possible by God's divine power. So this is our life lesson and just a simple truth to remind you all of and to ask you to personalize. It's trusting in Christ, stretching out and resting on Jesus. That's the only way to escape God's judgment and receive eternal life. So um, dear friend this morning, if, if as I was talking, you're looking at the chart doing done and you're saying, you know what? I've kind of been on the doing part. I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking about what I need to do for God to be pleased with me so he'll let me into heaven. If you're wondering, what am I actually trusting in? Let me give you a question, and we'll close with this, a question that you can think about because it exposes what your heart is believing. Here's the question. If you died today and God said to you, okay, why should I let you into my heaven? 
How would you answer him? I asked that to a woman one afternoon visiting some folks that had come to our church, and I asked her that question. She said, do you think he's going to ask that? Is he going to say, why should I let you into heaven? I said, very good chance. (laughs) And she said, oh, I never thought about it. She said, I would tell him, I I taught my children not to take drugs. And none of them, they're all grown adults now, none of them took drugs. I said, so what you're trusting in to forgive your sins, what you're counting on is that God's going to look at that and say, okay, that's good enough. All your other sins are crossed out now. She looked right back at me and said, that's not good enough, is it? (laughs) I said, no, it's not. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us and washes us as we trust in Christ. So if you've not put your faith in Jesus yet in this way, I implore you today, be reconciled to God through what Christ has come. Come and talk to someone after the service and get that settled in your life. And Christian friend, this is the gospel around which we we gather as believers. This is what ties us together. This is what we celebrate every week. Yeah, we couldn't get there by ourselves, but in Christ, God has made a way for us. And so we, we stretch out and rest in that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the simplicity of your gospel. We thank you for the grace of the Spirit that allows us to hear the offense of the gospel, that we are sinners that cannot save ourselves. And yet the quickening power of the Spirit that allows us, that enables us to put faith, to stretch out and rest in what Jesus has done for us. And so, Lord, may this reality be reality in every heart here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.